Commitments to character. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I've been reading a little bit. I know you're shocked about that, but a couple quotes I read this last week or two uh, kind of fit in nicely with Hebrews 13, and that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a bulletin, you can look at Hebrews 13. Otherwise, I want to spend my time on that today. And Hebrews 13, so just I want to give a little bit of a background. Hebrews 13, Hebrews is a book that's written with uh, kind of two things. You know how I like to talk with you about abiding and repenting, how we walk with God is taking those two steps, abiding and repenting, abiding and repenting. So we want to abide with Jesus so that we can just do what he says. You know, part of this is just walking with him, knowing he's present, doing what he says, and then repenting because you know we're going to fail. And so every day we abide and we repent so we can walk well with God. Well, with Hebrews, what's happening is the author, we don't know who the author is, he's writing to those Hebrews in a time of suffering, in a time of struggle, because they're undergoing lots of persecution for trusting in Jesus, and they're tempted to go back to their Jewish roots, okay, go back to the old covenant way rather than the new covenant way. The old covenant being that which they received from Mount, on Mount Sinai from God through Moses. Here's the Ten Commandments, but not only those. Here's the 613 laws to show that you are set apart as my people. Follow these. Seek after me, God says, and you will remain. And of course they didn't. Then you have the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. God says, I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to do what needs to be done myself because you'll always fail. And so you can have new life in me. And so that's what they were trusting, but they were tempted to go back to the old way because they were just undergoing so much in persecution. And so the two steps, if you think of it, walking with Jesus here would be receiving the argument or the encouragement of what God's already done for them in Jesus and then the exhortation to live it out. That's what we need too, right? We need the encouragement of the scriptures, and then we need the exhortation. Some people call it the challenge. Now, because this is true, live this way. And when you heard John read Hebrews 13 today, let your brotherly love continue about marriage, about how you show hospitality, attitudes towards money, all those different things, those were all coming out. And that's the exhortation. That's the challenge. This is now how we want to live. Well, as we think about that, here's a couple of Quotes that I just love. I'm going to read them to you a couple of times and ask eventually that you'll re- kind of share them with me. It goes like this. The life well lived is a journey from open options to sweet compulsions. Now you might think, I don't like that quote already. Is the other one going to be worse? Well, it depends. Okay. The other one goes like this. Character emerges from our commitments. Character emerges from our commitments. The first one again, the life well lived. How many of us at the end of our lives would like to say, I've had a life well lived? Yeah, the vast majority of us. Some are like, what, did he say something? Okay. But for those of you who are awake, we're like, yes, I want a life well lived. Okay. And so, I mean... Honestly, does anybody want to go through life saying, I was a piece of trash, I didn't do squat with my life. That's not what we want, right? So we want a life well lived is a journey from open options, so it's not, I've got to keep all my options open to do what I want to do, to sweet compulsions. What compels us? What 
In other words, it's not just about freedom, loss of restraints, I can do whatever I want, but I'm compelled in this way. There's service here. There's something that has to be done. And there's the sweet compulsions we want to follow. And the other one is that character emerges from our commitments. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So as we think about this, again, I have a little something I want to read to you from the author, David Brooks. And it's from page 58 of his book, The Second Mountain. And it says this, Our commitments build our moral character. He writes, When my older son was born, the delivery was difficult, and he came out bruised and blue with a low APGAR score. I don't know what an APGAR score is, but there's at least two women in here who can tell you exactly what that is. He was whisked away to intensive care. Actually, there's three of them here. He was whisked away to intensive care. It was a harrowing time. In the middle of that first night, I recall thinking, if he should live for only 30 minutes, will it have been worth a lifetime of grief for his mother and me? Before having a kid, I might have thought, of course not. How could 30 minutes of life for a being who is not even aware of itself be worth a lifetime of grief for two adults? Where's the cost-benefit in that? But every parent will know that it makes perfect sense. After his birth, the logic is different. Instantly, it became clear that the life of the child has infinite dignity, and we would say has infinite dignity even before its birth. Of course, it is worth the grief, even if the candle is only lit for such a short time. Only a kid is born, I'm sorry, once a kid is born, you've been seized by a commitment, the strength of which you couldn't even have imagined beforehand. True for you with the twins, right, Kurt? It brings you to the doorstep of disciplined service. When a parent falls in love with a child, the love arouses amazing energy levels. We lose sleep caring for the infant. The love impels us to make vows to the thing we love. Parents vow to always be there for the kid. Fulfilling these vows requires us to perform specific self-sacrificial practices. We push the baby in a stroller when maybe we'd rather go out alone for a run. Over time, those practices become habits, and those habits engrave a certain disposition. By the time the kid is three, the habit of putting the child's needs first has become second nature to most parents. Slowly, slowly, by steady dedication, you've transformed a central part of yourself into something a little more giving more in harmony with others and more in harmony with what is good than it was before. Gradually, the big loves overshadow the little ones. Why would I spend my weekends playing golf when I could spend my weekends playing ball with my children? In my experience, people repress bad desires only when they are able to turn their attention to a better desire. When you're deep in a commitment the distinction between altruism and selfishness begins to fade away. When you serve your child, it feels like you are serving a piece of yourself. That disposition to do good is what having good character is all about. Then listen to this. In this way, moral formation is not individual. It is relational. Character is not something you build sitting in a room thinking about the difference between right and wrong and about your own willpower. Character emerges from our commitments. If you want to inculcate character in someone else, teach them how to form commitments. 
temporary ones in childhood, provisional ones in youth, permanent ones in adulthood. Commitments are the school for moral formation. As we think about that, think about that relational need that those Hebrews had. Their relationship to who? Well, first, their relationship to Jesus. You heard John read this morning, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And talks about being strengthened there, not about food, not about these ritualistic things that they would do, but about grace, which strengthens them. So first, they need that relationship. You know, have you ever had something where you're struggling to forgive someone, and you look at them and you're like, how in the world can I just forgive Nick? I don't really feel like forgiving Nick. He doesn't bring a lot to the table that I want to forgive him for, okay? So as long as you look this way, as long as you're not relating this way, you're not going to have what you need to give that forgiveness. But if you're focused on God, who so in love and mercy forgives all of your sins, and you live in that rich forgiveness, do you know that you have something to give? How many of us are trying to do things without the relationship where it first needs to be? Is that possible? It's like, well, I ain't forgiving them because they're not worthy of it. Right! Either are you. And so the reason we forgive is because we are forgiven. The reason we love is because we are loved. Remember how it says, we love because he first loved us. And if we lose that relationship idea, if I stop coming to church, if I stop getting connected to God, however that might be, I'm in danger of trying to live life on my own. I'm in danger of losing the way I can really live life well. Sweet compulsions. You know what it says in 2 Corinthians 5? I'd love it if you read 2 Corinthians 5 again and again and again. It says this, the love of Christ compels us. We love because he first loved us. As I live in his love, it compels me then to these relationships and to love well. Now, let me read to you just a little bit from Romans 5. Romans 5 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we trust in Jesus, that faith, we are set free. We're canc- our sins are canceled. We're made right with God. We have that good relationship. Through whom, through him, we have gained access by faith, by trust, into this grace that strengthens us, in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope because of the love of God that has who, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so our hope is in God who loves us. Perseverance, character, hope. Would you say those three words with me? Perseverance, character, hope. Okay. So our commitments, as we've been hearing, can lead us to character. I don't get more character by just kind of thinking about it and trying to figure out how I can have more strength to do it. I make commitments 
to my brothers and sisters in the church, to my spouse, to my family, to my workplace. I make these commitments and they help with my character. Well, I love these three words together because what those Hebrews needed was to persevere in the middle of their suffering and their struggle. Do you ever look back at your life and you say, I just haven't grown as much as I want to spiritually? Why aren't I further along? Why don't I grasp this better? Why don't I live more Christianly, if there's such a word? Do you ever think that? Why aren't I better by now? I wonder if those Hebrews ever thought that as they struggled with life, they were struggling because they received all this persecution, and they're like, I'm not really growing that much anyway. Is this, is this faith even worth having? I don't seem to be changing that much. I don't seem to be maturing like I would want to. In those moments... The author simply says, persevere, stay the course, eyes on Jesus, so you don't lose hope, persevere. And then from perseverance comes character, because as we persevere, as we suffer, God's changing us on the inside. Think for just a minute, what causes suffering in your life? Isn't a lot of the suffering in your life based on commitments? I'm committed to my job. Boy, do I suffer. I'm committed to my marriage. That sometimes brings stuff. I'm committed to my family. That brings... In other words, if I had open options, I just didn't... I didn't ever have to go to work. Didn't ever have to deal with a spouse that deals... Now, I got a great spouse, just so you know, okay? She's the one that thinks that much more than I, okay? But then you've got other stuff. So when you think on these things... Your your suffering comes from your commitments, and those commitments then help you grow in character because it helps to cut cut you off so you need to depend on the God who gives you the strength. You need to keep that relationship going to give you what you need to meet those needs and your commitments. And it brings us to hope. I shared this with the Bible class earlier. There was another shooting yesterday. You're all probably more aware of it than I. I last heard five dead, 21 injured. Do you know as I hear it, I'm just becoming more and more desensitized to it. When I heard it, it was like, oh, another one. Does that ever happen to you? Oh, another one? Unless there's someone that we know and love who's been somehow involved in it, injured in it, For these two gentlemen, they're from that area. Okay, so it's like, oh my goodness, that's sitting close to home. I wonder who I know that was impacted by this horrible event. But for some of us, Odessa's as far away as Maine. Like, okay, I don't don't know anybody there. And yet for those who do, that suffering is horrible. You know what we need in the middle of that suffering? Ultimately what we need is the first word of that book I'm having us read. Hope. We need hope, don't we? We desperately need hope. And our hope, as you read in that book, doesn't come from, hey, you know what? If I just pray hard enough, God's going to make it so that there's going to be never any more problems ever in this world. Isn't that great? I just wait for that day. Tomorrow? Maybe next Tuesday. You're all shaking your head because you know that's not how it works, right? 
It's not if I just pray, then soon, soon and very soon, there's going to be zero problems ever, and God will just take over, the, and it won't be. No. Our hope comes from knowing the God who is ultimately in charge, who says that in this world you will have trouble. And we trust the one who gives us hope because he is faithful, he's in charge, he knows what he's doing, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Again, has God ever used a difficulty in your life that you would have never asked for to help you to grow and mature and trust him more? Is God in the business of using difficulties to help mature and grow us? When you were a little child and you were growing, was there ever any pain in your body as you grew? Maybe God knows what he's doing, even when you and I can't figure it out. So, The Hebrews needed some help. They needed that encouragement. And so the encouragement they received again and again was that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Let's say it together. Jesus is greater. He is greater. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priest. He continues to intercede for us. His sacrifice was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. He is greater. He is greater because he brings the new covenant. I explained that earlier. No longer the old covenant that we have to do, but the new covenant that God has done for us. He is greater. It even talks about Mount Zion being better, and it's just awesome what it talks about. And so because Jesus is greater, we can have our confidence in him, find our strength in him to be about those commitments. I just want to give you three different commitments to people. I want you to think for a moment. Who are those people that you're committed to that cut you off short? Who are those people that, in other words, it's not that they are mean to you or bad to you. It's those are the people that you have to do for, and it might be a real joy for you, And sometimes it might be a little bit of a challenge. Is it a joy to come and see your father, Stuart? Yeah. Yeah. Is there ever a little bit of a challenge because the work thing and other things and whatever, you have to kind of get some things straightened out? No, because I I can bring my job. Because you can bring your job. Excellent. (laughs) You're easy. Can you think of people in your life where it's a joy and yet sometimes it's a challenge? In those moments, God is saying, stay committed. Think of it just for a moment. It said, obey your leaders. Okay, When I call for you to spend time in the word, to keep coming to church, to keep coming to the table, to do these different things, I'm acting as your pastor, as your leader. Submit to God in his ways. Let God's word convict you and bring you to the cross. That's not always easy, but it's a joy because you know it's about growing in Jesus. Maybe there's another thing that you hear. The other thing that you hear is show brotherly love to one another. As you look around the room, just a quick look around. Is everybody here super easy for you to love? I mean, just super easy. At any time, if they called at 11 o'clock tonight, you'd be like, I'm so excited to hear from you. No, oh, that's weird. Okay, so, may, so you love each other, but sometimes you're like, would you just call somebody else? Here's Henry's number. Give him a call. Okay, we might think that, right? Find somebody else. And yet, the brotherly love. You know what it says? The marriage bed should be undefiled. Within marriage. Is it ever a challenge to love? Does it ever call us up short? It's a struggle sometimes, isn't it? It's a struggle. 
And so we want to stay committed. Because through that struggle, through that suffering, leads to character and brings us ever closer to finding that hope in Jesus. Because sometimes, you know what happens, we look to our spouse, we look to other people to be our hope, don't we? That's why sometimes within our culture, it's like relationships and marriage is the ultimate. Maybe just relationships, okay, with our culture. But it's like, if I just find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, that'll be everything. It'll be perfect. It'll be the most awesome thing ever. Sex will be the best ever, and everything else will be perfect. Right? And you look at a couple that's been married how many years? Sparks? 60. I happen to notice her because she was laughing when I said that. So she knows that's not how it works. The rest of you know that's not how it works. But you stay committed anyway because God grows you and because you made a vow of commitment. So leaders, marriage, brotherly love. And then there's this whole idea of committed to a way of being. This one's pretty powerful. In Hebrews 13, it talks about being, being those who show hospitality. And I've been in a number of your homes. Oh, my goodness. You all know how to do that really well. And I want to just encourage that to happen more and more and more. Being hospitable to those around you, brothers and sisters in Christ, those around you in the neighborhood, wherever it might be, to keep exercising, showing that hospitality. And then it also says to be content. It's an attitude towards money. And that's always interesting. Because sometimes we have good attitude towards money and sometimes we're like, I just can't ever have enough. Do you ever struggle with that? You don't have to say anything or hold up your hand. Do you ever struggle with that? Because our culture puts such extreme um, importance upon money. As though if I just have a little bit more, that'll make me super duper happy. But then I'll be fulfilled if I just have a little bit more. But yet, it's never that way. Money is always elusive. How much is enough? Some rich, tremendously rich man. Who was that that said it? Rockefeller? Somebody else? They asked him how much was enough money, and he said, just a little bit more. And he had all he could use, all he could ever spend. So having an attitude, being committed to being content with what we have. I have books. You know how many books is enough? Just a little bit more. (laughs) Just another 10 or a dozen on my Kindle, just another 12 or 14 in my garage. That would be enough. So we have to ask, are we content people? Am I committed to that? Because when I'm learning to be committed to that, to being content, it helps me to grow so I'm not continually feeding myself. And lastly, committed to God and his praise. When you read that book, Hope in the Dark, it's going to bring you eventually to Habakkuk. It's going to bring you to Habakkuk chapter 3. And what's happening in Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is crying out to God because there's just wickedness amongst God's people. So just imagine that we're fighting, not getting along, being violent, not meeting each other's needs. All that's happening. And so then then Habakkuk, one of the people, cries out and says, God, something is happening. We need some help here. There's so much wickedness amongst us. And so God says, okay, I'll bring the Babylonians, and they'll take care of it. 
And Habakkuk's like, no, that's worse. Don't send them. They're worse people. We don't need that. But that's what God's going to do. And what God's doing in Habakkuk's life is helping him to see that he's in charge, he's in control, and even though you don't understand, trust him. Listen to the words that he uses to close his book. Because it talks about in Hebrews chapter 3 about, those, about us offering a sacrifice of praise to God, committed to praising God. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no stalls, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. How do we make that contemporary? Though I lost my job and there's no food in the pantry, my relationships are broken and struggling, yet I will praise God. Would you say that might be quite difficult? Yeah, me too. Are we committed to praising God even when I don't understand, even when my health's not good, even when things are falling apart? Are we committed to praising God and getting our eyes off of ourselves and our immediate circumstances and onto Him? You know, there's just been a part. I'm going to finish with this. Thanks for being so patient with me today. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, I used to not really even engage my brain until the fourth petition. Do you know what the fourth petition says? Give us this day our daily bread. Like, yeah, that's the part I wanted to get to. Okay, God, now we're there. Thanks. This is what I want. Here's the question. Do you know that, are you aware that the part before that is incredibly important and acts as an umbrella over the rest? What if my life wasn't about me being pleased about how things go in my life? What if my life was all about, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What if you and I prayed those things and spent the majority of our effort and our thoughts on, how can I make much of God's name today? How can I recognize that he is king and I get to live under him in his kingdom? How can I ask God to work in my life in such a way that his will is done here like it is perfectly in heaven. And I would just venture to say that if I'm asking those questions, I might be a person of godly character and I might be a person who's living well. Amen?